You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. A huge thank you and a big shout out to everybody who has left ratings and reviews on iTunes. We certainly appreciate it. Keep them coming. Again, it doesn't have to be a long review. It doesn't have to be five paragraphs. Just give us a rating. Hopefully, you'll give us five stars and write a review. This will help grow the podcast, help get to a bigger audience, and hopefully that will start to lead to some bigger guests for all of us uh, so we can continue to tell these great stories of America's heroes. Don't forget to follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground and Hazard Ground Podcast. Also, subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can get all the episodes there on YouTube. Don't forget about our promotion with Amazon. Go to our website, hazardground.com. Click on the Sponsors tab at the top of the homepage or scroll down to the bottom of the homepage. You'll see the Amazon button there. It'll take you directly to Amazon. You can do all of your normal Amazon shopping. We'll get a percentage of whatever you guys spend, and we'll donate it right back to some of the great charities that you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground. And finally, if you guys want to email the show, you can do so, producer at hazardground.com. I got an amazing email from a listener to the show who actually served with many of the people who have been on this podcast, and that individual spoke of just what an inspiration this podcast has been and how it's helped him through some tough times and really helped to really hear some of the things that some of these guests are saying to let them know that they're not alone, that they, they can talk to people, that there is a way for them to get through whatever they're thinking and feeling after all that we have been through together. So keep those emails coming, stay in contact with us, stay in contact with one another, and certainly let's continue to support each other in every way possible. So with that out of the way, let's get on to this week's episode. Joining us this week is a retired Sergeant First Class from the United States Army. She deployed to both Iraq and Afghanistan. After being wounded and medically retired in 2012, she went on to build Pathfinder.vet as well. She has a connection with the Headstrong Project, and she is Lana Duffy joining us here on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Lana, welcome. Thank you for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. Okay. Um, I didn't say in the intro that you worked in the intelligence community, but that is what you did do. Um, yeah. and there was, well, it, it, there's, a, there's a lot there, because usually when we say military intelligence, automatically it puts people in a certain spot, and I kind of wanted to let you, you know, divulge all that on your yeah. own. But a different path for you into the military as you got an Ivy League education before heading into the United States Army? What happened? How and why'd you get in? <laughs> what happened is kind of the best way to, I think, phrase that. Um, uh, I feel like that's what my parents said, too. They were like, wait, what, what happened? Um, I, uh, I wanted to be an astronaut growing up. Uh, I still do. Uh, not a huge secret. So I wanted to be an astronaut and I was following that path all the way into college. I went to engineering school at Cornell. I was doing mechanical and aerospace engineering. I was super pumped. I had gone to space camp, not once, but twice. Uh, so that's a real and, thing, space camp. Oh, yeah. So, oh. yeah, and it's space camp and then space academy. And oh. I went to space academy because so I was a super <laughs> nerd. So, yeah, I was super into this. I actually got myself a mentor at NASA to kind of guide me through the college process and so forth. I originally was saying, you know, I'm going to 
apply to some of the service academies because a lot of the astronaut corps comes out of the service academies. And then I said, wait a minute, it's actually not super practical to go to what amounts to basic training for four years when I could just go for nine weeks. Um, and didn't do ROTC, said, all right, I'm going to do the civilian route whole hog uh, so I can focus on doing well here. And about, it was most, I think it was most of the way into freshman year, maybe beginning of sophomore year that my NASA mentor said, hey, wait a minute, your eyesight sucks. And for some reason, this never occurred to me. Um, and eye surgery was not an option at the time. This was the late nineties and it was, uh, it was considered too dangerous to have somebody go into space with eye surgery, uh, with having received eye surgery. So I had to find kind of a new path, decided to switch my major, went into data engineering and, and, uh, like logic engineering operations research and got my master's and then decided, um, and I was still like kicking around, like, how am I going to work this? Like, I don't like being told you can't do something. So I went, uh, so I got a job, got a job in construction, uh, in civil engineering and was bored in about four months of staring at cubicle walls and looking at blueprints said, that's it. You know, that whole military thing that I was kicking around for a long time, I'm, I'm doing it. And I decided that I didn't want to do engineering. I didn't want to do core of engineers, none of that. And I opted to go into human intelligence collection, interrogations and uh, counterintelligence investigations, which are cross-listed as all right. So, let me ask you a question real quick. On the ground. Let me ask yeah. you a question real quick. Is that where you ended up? Because when you took the ASVAB, the test that they try to grade your sort of uh, military aptitude in, you scored really high, and that was one of the choices. Or did you go into this whole process saying that's what I wanted to do: military intelligence, counterintelligence, things of that nature? I like tangible results. I like I like seeing the product of my efforts. It's one of the reasons why. Um, I mean, I've went into engineering in the first place was because I like, uh, I like seeing a finished product. So I reasoned if I'm going to go in the military, I want to be on the ground. And I mean, this is now the early 2000s and women were not in combat roles, nothing of the sort. So, um, went in originally as counterintelligence, which at the time you could still do, and then ended up getting cross-listed and on the ground for two straight deployments, trying to find the bad guys with the bombs, hopefully before the bombs went off. Right. Um, yeah, I loved it. When you got in, this was post 9-11? Yes. Okay. And and you said that your parents said, what are you doing? Um, what was their reaction <laughs> when you told them all this and this is the route you're going to go? Tell me more about that. Oh, man. Uh, youngest daughter, uh, like, you know, Jew from New Jersey, you know, New York City parents and, and all of this. Like, you don't you don't run into a whole lot of 
people from that particular demographic in the military. Yeah, well, I'm um, from New York, so uh, you know, the, the, the Northeast isn't exactly populated when you when you start, you know, yeah. <laughs> being stuck around army bases all over the country and all over the world. And New York seems to be in the minority. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, so I, I went to, um, I went back to my parents, and I was like, look. Uh, I was thinking about doing it maybe as a reserves thing and keeping the job because there's a recession going on and I'm not an, I'm not an idiot. But at the same time, maybe I am an idiot because uh, it kind of sounds like fun and this is, I think, what I want to do. And I decided to enlist. Did not want to go in as an officer without having... Oh, I, I wanted to know what people... If I was going to lead people, I wanted to know what they, were, what they had gone through. And so my... Logic was if I if I really like it I'll either go officer or warrant officer, and uh, if I want to continue a career I'll, I'll switch over and, and do one of those tracks. But I'm not going to jump into leading people that I have no experience in their field. And I actually signed up. I signed my contract before uh, we went to Iraq, but I went. Uh, by the time I left for basic training, by the time they had a school date for me, uh, we had we had been in the country less than a month. Okay. So, so we're talking April um, two thousand three. Yeah. Okay. So, what was yeah. basic training like for you? I mean, were you prepared for it mentally, physically? Oh my god, I had such a good time. <laughs> it's so like when I look back, and it's funny because I was reading, I read a bunch of the letters that I wrote and like, you know, like I, I tore a hamstring. So I was like, Oh my God, this hurts. And my life is terrible. But when I look back, when I talk to some of my friends that I still have from basic training, like I had a blast. I had fun. Um, you know, running around, running around in the mud. I had always been like, I've been a rock climber. There are, things that probably like my parents may or may not still like know that I was doing in like high school where I was, you know, like, oh, I'm going to, you know, bike over to the reservation and climb a waterfall with no ropes because I don't, apparently I have no sense of personal safety. Um, and, you know, fell off my garage roof. I had broken my nose like five times. I was, I was a straight up tomboy type of kids, so I don't I don't know how super surprised my parents were. I think they would have been more surprised if my sister had gone. But um, I thought basic training was like a hoot. I think it's I I mean I walked in on the first day and they make you like run around, run laps around a field and like try to line your bags up or else you have to do push ups and there's no way to win. And I just remember like in hot South Carolina sun doing doing these push-ups and running these laps and being like, well, whatever, man, they can't kill you because then somebody's probably going to get in a lot of trouble. So whatever, like they have to stop eventually. And just that weird logical approach, I taught myself to kind of just enjoy it. So from Fort Jackson, you head to Fort Huachuca uh, to military intelligence school. What's that like? I mean, uh, now, just, I want to remind the audience here. You already have a bachelor's degree from Cornell, right? 
in engineering and, and, and a oh, master's okay. degree and a master. <laughs> well, I was getting there. I'm just saying you have a bachelor's degree and a master's yeah. degree. So, you know, going to Fort Huachuca shouldn't exactly, you know, be the most difficult thing in the world. But what, what did you expect or not expect about it? I, I, you know, like, uh, actually I probably, I didn't expect to adapt so quickly. Like Fort Huachuca, for anyone who hasn't been there, it's, it's, uh, so it's a little on the remote side. It's, South of it's very south of Tucson. It's like right on the. It's almost on the border with Mexico and southern Arizona. Uh, but our class got along really well, uh, and you know we were. And you could tell. I think what really drew me to it is that you could tell that we were. If we when you deployed or when you were actually able to do the job, which really for those two fields, human intelligence, you have to really be deployed to do it. Uh, is you were going to really, you were going to actually do something. You were going to do something impactful. And if you were good at it and if you learned what they were trying to teach you, you were going to be, uh, you could actually really make a difference. More people were going to come home. More innocent people were going to be, were, were, would be safer. It was like a very much a, a job where you could see this is the impact of my work and like, this is how I'm, I'm actually contributing. And, um, so I, I dedicated a lot of kind of effort and energy into, uh, learning what it was that they were trying to teach and the main, all the principles, principles behind it and everything. All right. Um, after you finish Fort Huachuca, uh, where's your first duty station? How quickly do you deploy? Fayetteville, North Carolina. Uh, my orders got cut for Fort Bragg and I show up, the Sergeant Major says, we can't, we, we need to send you to airborne school, but, uh, cause you know, you're here and everybody's airborne, but, um, but first we're, but we're sending you to this company that's deploying in like two months ish. So, uh, good luck with that. And we'll send you to airborne school when we get back. And uh, that was when I went to Afghanistan. So I uh, showed up in maybe like December and we left in February uh, for Afghanistan. And I tell you the one thing, walking off, walking off the uh, tailgate of the aircraft in Afghanistan, we were just, we only went as a company size element and, and Intel and Intel companies are tiny. So there was only like 40, 50 of us maybe going and, uh, walking off, walking down that, the ramp, you just see like, and you just see in, in Bagram, like the, the mountains in the distance and like the, uh, just nothing. And then it's just this tangle. And I was like, Oh, this is what, this is, as it turned out, the one thing that movies get right, like, uh, what Afghanistan there is looks a space like. Where, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just kind of that, like dirt and space, like open space and then mountains. Like this, this is right. Um, that's, I think the only time that I really like felt like I was like in a movie because, you know, you're walking down two rows, one on each side of the ramp, and, you know, lugging 
as much of your crap as you can carry because the rest of the stuff is piloted anyway. And then you just, you know, getting shuttled around into, into hard sites. And we, uh, and I was like, this, this feels like a movie. This, this, this feels almost right because it was kind of exactly what you expected. That was just one thing that always stuck with me was how kind of perfect that moment was, you know, right before everything went to shit. Uh, and that was, that would have been early Oh four. And I got sent on a four person team out West. So. All right. Was, so you, you, you keep saying how you wanted to have an impact, right? And you wanted to see dynamic results and things of that nature. So yeah. when you get to your four person team, you get sent out West and you start doing interrogations, counterintelligence, things of that nature. Um, what is it like? Do you remember your first interrogation? Do you remember your first run-in with a prisoner? Do you remember uh, some of those kind we of things? Were, we were, so we were a human intelligence. We were one of the human collection teams at the time. Uh, actually, tactical tactical human teams were what we were called back then, and we were because most of our uh, our primary interrogators were in the Bagram facility. They were managing the Bagram facility. And then we were out there to do uh, basically collection operations, find the find the people to send back to um, that facility. So we, but what was interesting about being out west that early is there was nothing there. It was uh, there was no Shindan base. There was no Farah base. It was just us. There was a four person special forces team. It was a PRT, the uh, Provincial Reconstruction Team mm-hmm. bases. So we had a we had a civil affairs team, and then there were maybe eighty field artillery folks out there to basically do like guard duties and stuff like that. But it was a tiny little compound right in the middle of Center City, Harat, and uh, like we we weren't getting mail or food on a regular basis delivered from the army. So it was just kind of like, they were, they were basically like, all right, you guys have fun out there and, you know, try not to let the uh, quote unquote governor who was Ishmael Khan, a warlord, try, try to stay on his good side. Cause uh, he's, he's, he's not super nice. He doesn't like America super much, but Luckily, he hated Dostum up up north more, so he usually concentrated his forces there. Um, so it was a really it was an interesting duty assignment because we were responsible for four provinces with just this teeny tiny little group. We were responsible for election sites for the first election, and we were responsible for helping to like figure out the political mess that had been made of the West. Uh, we were just, uh, we were not far at all from the Iranian, from a major, uh, major border crossing with Iran. And then of course people coming across the border all the time anyway. So it was a very politically sensitive area and very remote. It was like we were in a completely different country from everyone else. We had other teams that were able to, you know, like, oh, if someone in 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 like Gardez had uh accidentally zeroed out the radio, 
someone from Gosney could, you know, hop in the vehicle, they could hop in the vehicles and they could go over there and, and figure it all out. We were like, if you screw something up, it could be a month before they send an aircraft out. So good luck. So it was, it was a, it was a strange experience because it was built up because it's a major city. But at the same time we were, it was like us and the UN and that was pretty much it. And it was, it was ridiculous. Um, but what's day to day life like? Oh, uh, well, it was kind of uh, a lot of our stuff was was with uh, we worked a lot with the UN um, who were doing uh, uh, they were still in a lot of the demining operations and election security. So uh, we would have we would head over to their compound and have meetings with the consulates that were well they were i think it they called it a consulate but it's it it was just basically a gathering of various countries that would show up there kind of every day um uh so a lot of it was liaison we but then at least once at least once a week maybe once every two weeks we would go on these much longer missions where we just basically pack up and head to one of the other provinces where we, we started having to build out source operations. So it's try and figure out where are the people with ulterior motives and, you know, what can we figure out about this ongoing battle between our provincial governor and the warlord up North, uh, they didn't get along and they shared a border. So, um, it was a re- it was it was really interesting it was very uh but you you never felt uh you never felt really like you were kind of under perpetual attack out west at least not at that point um and we were we were really active in trying to keep that uh trying to keep that all under control like we uh we did make nice with the with the governor and we did work really closely with the community and with, uh, the, the different teams that were available to us. I mean, we were still generating a ton of Intel pretty much every day, but it was, um, like going to, when I went, when I got to Iraq less than a year later, we, it was a different world, like completely different, different environment. Because it was so, it was still relatively early for, uh, I mean, we were still doing poppy eradication. We were, we were doing all of these kind of higher strategic level operations, but at a very tactical, like one-on-one level. So it was, it was interesting. And I learned an awful lot about developing country politics and what really happens when you put warlords in charge of different parts of the country because right. at least that keeps them out of your hair. Um, Did you feel like you were so, making the impact that you wanted to? Not, uh, not entirely. And I think because it was so strategic, uh, like I knew that it was making a difference because it was 
even Hellman at the time was, uh, we were like our, the portion of Hellman and Farah that we were responsible for, like it was kind of, we were, we were still able to build a lot of really good relationships that we, that did contribute to kind of keeping, keeping the area from, from blowing up. Like we knew that there was a ton of poppy. We knew that there was, uh, still Taliban down there, but it wasn't, it, it, I mean, really like Farah and Hellman didn't, hadn't, they had, they didn't go to shit until actually like right after we left is when they started having like attacks in Shindan and Farah. And that's when we were like, Oh, maybe we were, maybe some of the relationship building that we were doing was really actually making a, bigger difference than we thought. Right. Um, so, uh, because a lot of people, they hadn't placed priority because it was a bit safer. Like they focused less and less priority on that area. So when we left and there was not a, they, they weren't putting a lot of effort into maintaining that relations deteriorated pretty quickly. So it was, uh, actually that, that was probably the worst thing to see. That was the hardest thing to see was, you know, we left, and a month later, uh, there were attacks on U.S. forces in Shindan, where like we would, we could like walk up to somebody at the market, like that we had been talking to, or we could uh, we could go out to eat in the center of the city in Herat with minimal security because it was just like we knew who people were and people knew who we were, and it was uh, so it was a really it was, it was actually really sad to start seeing that go downhill so rapidly in uh, late 2004, early 2005. But we were already picking up. I mean, we only we were in Afghanistan for about six months, and then came home for about four, and then were on a plane to Iraq because the rest of the battalion was going. Actually, the rest of the gate ended up going. So That's you, a different story. You never got to uh, airborne school, did you? Nope. 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 Okay, so you go <laughs> right. You, right, you go. You go yeah, right. You go right to Iraq. Like, rest, refit, and re- and deploy again. All right, so uh, Iraq was okay, different. On the flip side, right? Exactly. Iraq was different from Afghanistan outside of the location, obviously. But how was it different operationally for you? Oh my god, so much different. I mean, why you had a such an active insurgency? First, I was I was originally put in the green zone. Um, when did you get there which, again? You know, uh, early '05. So did I. So, uh, Sauter, uh, yep. the Sauter and his various militias. There was a huge, uh, huge kidnapping issue, and of locals and especially of foreign, of foreigners, uh, like all of the different foreign parties. Uh, Juliana Sagrina, all of these other um, folks were being kidnapped at the time. The tide had kind of turned already against the U.S. being there. So um, Sauter City was just a, oh, God, that place. Uh, it was the most dangerous place and, in Baghdad. Yeah, it was so, it was so fun. Uh, so my team was put in the green zone because... Uh, coincidentally, we were about to be there for the first election once again. It was like November of 05, right? Uh, Somewhere in that time range? 
It was, it yeah, so we were doing, uh, I think it was early, earlier in 05 where the first Iraqi election. I was there for, uh, I remember. It was, I remember it, it was still transitional, yeah. Because right. um, it was still like the transitional election. Uh, it was, and so that, that was like my first three months. Uh, I mostly, I did a lot of election stuff and then a lot of generalized security stuff working out of the, working at the embassy. We, uh, so I did a lot of that and then I moonlighted technically, uh, as a liaison for the hostage working group, which was the main hostage work force that was built out of the embassy. Um, and they had no intelligence asset. So I fell in with them and in my like off hours from doing my regular team duties of, you know, talking to people who are coming on base and trying to develop sources that way and trying to make sure that they didn't get shot by the snipers that were just outside the green zone and so forth. Um, we were, uh, I was trying to help locate, uh, I mean, this is when, uh, Malpin, we were looking at that point, we already knew that we were looking for the body, um, uh, for Sergeant Malpin and for, uh, Juliana Sacrina and, and several others. And for those that don't know, let me just interject with, here, Lana, one second. Uh, Matt Keep Moffman was yeah. a, was an MIA army guy who was ambushed at some point in time in late 04. Uh, there were videos and yeah. pictures of him alive as a prisoner of war. Um, we searched for him endlessly. Uh, I don't, we actually found his remains, but I think it was post, yes. it was around 2012. It was when I was, it, uh, it was, I don't think it was that late. Was it that? Uh, I think it was like, Oh, I feel like it was like, Oh, seven or something. Well, anyway, so it, it, he was just one of the more notable prisoners of war, uh, that was, was captured yeah. and we, went on forever to uh, to try to recover him, and it was unsuccessful, unfortunately. But uh, uh, anybody yeah. who was in Iraq yeah. uh, from 05 on knows the name Matt Keith Maupin. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that was that was definitely one of the harder ones to to reconcile. I mean, like, we uh, we had a... We, we knew we had seen already the, the videos, um, but uh, it was... That was a, that was one of the harder ones because you you know when you're it's like when you say okay we're going from rescue to recovery it was it, that was that was much more of a tough one but the I mean the sense of urgency is still there because you don't you still want to get you you need to still get the person home you need to get the body home the person home and I gotten a report like uh, oh one of my sources came in and said there's an American buried here uh, at this one particular spot and reported it back up, but it was uncorroborated. So nobody checked it. And I remember like a couple of years later when they did recover him and they were like, it was in this section. I think it was, I think it was like along the, the Tigris, maybe I can't remember now. Um, that was, you know, an IED and a couple of brain injuries ago, but uh I do remember saying like, oh, that's, that's right where I thought it was. Um, and you know, that's, that's like a kick in the gut. Like, oh, I could have, uh, we, 
we could have recovered, we could have recovered them years ago. Um, that's when it really starts to hit you of not only the, the impact that you're able to provide, but like when stuff doesn't go as planned. Um, so that's a, that's a, a guilt complex that you don't get over terribly easily. Um, one of the various militias who you might recall the, it was what the 1929 revolutionary brigade. Uh, that's what they called themselves, but it was a militia that was kidnapping pretty much just like everybody. They would just roll people off the street and sell the people to the highest bidder or hang on to them themselves. They would sell them to um, Al-Qaeda in Iraq. They would sell them to wherever. And uh, someone came in with just this amazing lead and we ended up being able to uh, dissolve the the group with uh, with their help and with uh, the help of some of the local um, the local uh, folks that were able to just I mean they 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 risked absolutely everything because they had to come into the green zone to the, to report and I mean it was uh, I actually I I know that that person did not survive uh the the war i don't even think they they survived my deployment because uh the eventually the one of the snipers outside of the green zone got them that was one of like the the huge um the, the kind of the big moments of like okay this this is why we do this this is this is making a difference it was like as good uh, I would say is as being able to say to an infantry commander, which is what I then did for like six, eight, whatever more months, being able to say you like in the next week, you'll have, you know, an IED here, here, and here. Um, and having them come back and be like, we got, like, we got them. Awesome. Um, when you get something good, uh, that you you know that you that somebody is somebody else is going to come home, and that's like the biggest reward and like just being able to like make those connections and make the call and even if I'm not the one out there digging up the explosive or uh, pulling in and recording the the weapons cache or, or whatever. It's so much to know exactly what you are able to contribute. And that's like the tangible, that's the tangible feeling that I was definitely kind of after mm -hmm. when sure. I went in to the service. And that was, I mean, it's addictive. Like it's a, it's a really interesting job field in that there's, the highs are really high and the lows are really low because I mean, if you screw up, somebody ends up dead. Right. Speaking of some of the lows so, though, um, let's talk about what happened the day you got injured. Do you remember what that day was like at the beginning of it at least? So, um, it was, uh, and it's, so actually I'll, what I'm, what I'll do is, uh, I'll start at about two, about two weeks prior. Cause 
this will all come together later about two, two or three weeks before uh, the ID that ultimately ended my career, but mm, we're not there yet. Uh, this is still 2005. Um, I was on, we, uh, one of my teammates and I had been sent, this is after I'd moved to the tactical mission. I've been working with the 1442 infantry and, uh, doing a much more tactically based job, uh, actually out there really like talking to people about the bad guys with the bombs. And, uh, we were driving along kind of a main road, uh, up and, Honestly, I couldn't tell you where it was. I feel like it might have been somewhere near to crit, but not positive. And um, there was, uh, at, at this point, I mean, it was still, you could still fire warning shots, but they were frowned upon. And there was a lot of, there were a lot of car bombs, and it was, the place where it was, it was right near some of the oil fields. And so it was, uh, it was kind of a sensitive area. And one teammate and I had been sent up there to do something else as part of, part of our mission, uh, to assist somebody. And we had been in one of the trucks riding along with the local, I think they were infantry unit. Um, and we were actually in a one, two, three, four, four vehicle pileup because some like somebody cut in, thought it was an explosive, so the vehicle right in front of us stopped short uh, because every I mean the entire area tensions were pretty high, so the vehicle right in front of us stopped short but it was one of those jingle trucks, like a worker truck mm -hmm. where it had like eight people on the back of it. And, uh, they basically just cut in, stopped short. Uh, we slammed into them and, uh, an 11, 14, which was the, the one, the, the iteration where they did build on the armor, but they still weren't quite doing it right. But, um, uh, the, the so the eleven and it knocked out like a huge chunk of the we hit them so hard that it knocked a chunk of that armor out um, and they hit the vehicle in front which was not uh it was not a v bit it was not a, a vehicular bomb and that as it turned out hit a, a front loader which nobody could see. Uh, because it was just kind of going nice and slow down the road. Uh, the driver of the front loader was thrown out and underneath his vehicle. He did not, he didn't survive. I think three of the workers uh, didn't survive this. It was a mess. And I had been sitting in the back seat uh, as a ride along. And I am. Uh, at the time I was probably like, I was probably under 110 pounds, like, because it's hot as, it's hot as hell. And I like, don't eat when I'm like super hot and like 
just uh, like you like don't even want the heat that eating gives you. I would just like drink water and like maybe have like a granola bar. Mm-hmm. So I I was like 110 pounds and wearing about 70 pounds of body armor. But and so the impact threw me forward and my boot lace got stuck around anyone who's ever been in an old 1114 knows that there's that stupid useless they call it an m16 holder and it's for the buttstock of your rifle and then there's a clip up top like what are you going to do shoot the friggin' metal ceiling like uh, it, it was the most useless piece of garbage to be put in this to be put in the trucks complete like ever um, it doesn't even like stick out the turret. It just goes nowhere. Um, but my boot lace, I was jammed forward so hard and so quickly that my boot lace, when my foot slams into this thing, uh, my boot lace got stuck and my whole body basically twisted around, uh, around my foot as my foot stayed in the same place. So, um, but when we, and so, you know, we get out and everybody's kind of in shock and whatever. And, uh, I remember my, uh, teammate who was not in the same vehicle had been in the vehicle behind us came up and was like, uh, could recognize right away that I was kind of just like in shock. Like I wanted to try and go and help the like the front loader driver and like do all these things and she was like not even walking so good like stand right here and I just remember staring out at the desert feeling completely useless and that's when I was like huh my leg hurts like it didn't even occur to me at all um so we end up getting back to a, a after all of that's over we end up getting back to one of the little more remote Bob's and they were like, we see the medic and he looks at my leg and was like, uh, I don't know. Like it was in the boot. It's probably not broken. It might just be sprained. It might have bruised, bruised it real bad. So, you know, take some Motrin, drink water, do the things that military people do, take a knee. Um, and turns out like four months later that it was actually broken uh, I had broken it, uh, crushed part of the bone, and torn several uh, pieces of soft tissue, so ligaments and tendons. Uh, so that never healed, right? But two to three weeks later, as we were driving along, um, I had recently reported on a string of IEDs that would be along a common like the route was like always, it was like, it would be black in the morning. They would send route clearance. So it would go to uh red, like drive at your own risk. Um, uh, oh, for, for those who aren't familiar with those terms, I suppose the, when the route was considered black, you, uh, it was not, not permissible to, right. to drive. And uh, then there were various other color codes for exactly how safe they thought it was going to be today. Um, so route clearance went through, and about maybe an hour or two later, we were taking that road. Route clearance had picked up 
two of the three IEDs exactly where they were supposed to be. And apparently the third one uh, had been dropped after a route clearance went through. Um, like they pre-dug the hole or something uh, and they dropped a huge, uh, they dropped a huge IED down uh, in, in this hole, but because it was so hasty, uh, when we found it the hard way, uh, which is to say it uh, went off, uh, it, they timed it, it was a little, the timing was a little off, uh, so it hit maybe 20, 25 meters, I think, away from our vehicle. I, again, like, I, I don't remember most of that day. Like, my memory, I used to have a, a near photographic memory. I could sit there in a meeting, remember everything that was said, and write it down word for word two hours later or three hours later. Um, so it's, uh, so the explosive goes off, um, and I don't remember, I I remember nothing from a, a little bit before to, I do, I have a flash in my brain of the driver of the vehicle turned around looking at me and I've been working with these guys for, you know, six months or so at this point. And usually the same teams from the Honda 442. And, um, I remember he was turned around and he had his hand reached out towards me and he was like, Hey, like, uh, he had put his hand like, like maybe on my knee or something was like, Hey, are you okay? And, the like, and then I have little flashes after that, but I uh, I get out uh, of the vehicle. So what had apparently happened is the concussive blast. We were in um, we were in an add-on armor vehicle, so the concussive blast had gaps that it. I mean, it just passed through and. Again, like I'm super tiny and wearing a lot of equipment, it hits the the glass from this bomb hits, and it was like getting hit by a freight train. I was blown back in the seat, and there's a metal plate behind uh, behind some of the seats in some of these trucks, and even though I had my helmet on, I slammed my the my head rocked back on the very poorly fitting body armor and I slam my head straight into a uh, one of those metal plates so I get simultaneously hit from the front and then stop short from behind um and it triggered an apoplexy or a brain hemorrhage uh but nobody it was 2005 nobody was Nobody was looking at those things yet. So I just thought I was going crazy because my ears were ringing. Um, my, uh, I had blood coming out of my ears, but figured it was probably just, you know, burst eardrum, something like that. Um, but I, 
in my, like in my own brain, I didn't know who anybody was, you know, uh, I didn't know their names. I was reading the main tapes off of, off of their, uh, off their vests. And, um, I, I couldn't remember my interpreter's name. I couldn't remember my partner's name. They were in a different vehicle and I am just sitting there like, Oh my God, I finally lost my mind. Cause I didn't, I knew nothing about head injuries and I, my balance was gone. I was like, could not walk in a straight line. I was holding on to stuff, but I had to try and play it off because those, that was the day and age where men, they would, they would take your clearance away if they thought you were going crazy. And I was like, there is no way I'm getting pulled off the road. There's no way I'm doing, uh, you know, there's no way I'm going to find a different job. Like, no way. This is like what I'm here for. I just got to fake it. And my partner realized it when, um, you know, the QRF is called, they come on, they secure the scene. Uh, one of the guys had some shrapnel in his hands, but because the bomb had been so hastily dropped, uh, the bulk of the bulk of it fired uh, over the convoy. It fired like like directly over. So it was shrapnel. It was like shrapnel and dirt, and um, and but the but the blast that meant that the entire blast structure came straight at us. And I was like, oh, I remember some of physics. So, so after the blast and everything that's going on at this point in time, you know, you're fearful of saying something about what's going on. How does the rest of that deployment finish? It was, I mean, I was terrified every day that someone was going to find me out because, I mean, the migraines started that night, uh, by that night. Uh, I didn't know who people were when we, when we, we ended up continuing mission that day. I think the QRF might have maybe replaced the guy was like, who had got, uh, the, my gunner, but they were like, well, you know, like the vehicles can still go and like sucks, but like, we still got to do our, we still got to do what we got to do. I remember we, so we pulled up to, we pulled up to a house and I had no idea what we were doing there. I thought we, and I was like, are we setting up a checkpoint like in front of a house? Like what, what's going on? And the convoy commander was like, no, this is where you told us that you need to go today. And I was like, oh, yeah, right, cool. Um, and this has all been recounted to me. Like, I I remember none of this, So, but um, my partner walks up, and I was like, dude, what are we doing here? And he's like, this is your guy. Like, this is the, uh, I, God knows the I have no real recollection of anything else, but uh, he was like one of my primary sources. I've been dealing with him already for months. And of course I never wrote anything down except for the reports. And I was like, dude, I have no idea what's going on. Like, I don't know who he is. I don't know what's up. I had also like stumbled my way down a hill. So I had already flared up that ankle foot injury, like, everything was like a mess and he was that's when he realized because i was one of those people who never wrote anything down that's when he realized like something was actually wrong because i was like i don't remember i don't i don't i don't know who this guy is 
he ended up taking over for that meeting and for a couple of other things that day. And when we got back, he told uh, my team leader that uh, something was off. And of course, the army in 2005, their reaction was, the stress finally got to you. So we'll send you over to mental health and you send it like you send a human intelligence person over to mental health. What do you think they're going to tell the, they're going to tell them exactly what they want to hear so that you don't get pulled off the road. Are you kidding me? Right. Um, I mean, I just faked it for the next like month or so until we did transition operations. Cause this was late in the deployment. Right. Um, so this is 2005. And- but you don't get medically retarded until 2012. So what happens in that seven-year oh, yeah. span? Uh, I got adept at doctor dodging uh, because that fear of being told, no, you're actually like going nuts. That was so real to me. But I was, I was so, in, I was so keyed in on the fact that, like, you know, the number of attacks on our, on our forces locally stepped up uh, after after that point. And so, of course, I start taking all that on myself um, of being like, it's because I'm not like on my A game. Like, this is this is not this is bad, especially once we got home. I would be like, you know, I'm still having these migraines. I my balance is gone. Uh, Something's really wrong with my leg and I don't know what. But I really just don't want you guys to like have me stop working. I don't like, I want a PCS and like go somewhere and I'll deal with it later. And because every time I would tell them like, Oh, I'm not, I'm not sleeping. I can't concentrate. My memory's gone. My I'm like seeing shadows because my vision, the hemorrhage was pushing up my ocular nerve. So I was starting to lose my vis, my vision from the periphery. So it was just like this encroaching darkness. Uh, but you say that to, a team leader and they're like encroaching darkness, like shadows out of the corner of your eye, like time to go back to mental health. Um, so I just kept getting sent to a psych and ultimately I, I just stopped going. I stopped reporting symptoms. I stopped doing any of that until like two years later, my first sergeant calls at this point, I'm running a, a and uh, counterintelligence field office. I had PCS to Germany. I'd moved to Germany. My first sergeant calls up and said, Hey, you just came up red on the medical um, metros because you apparently have never attended your annual post deployment health reassessment. And, uh, you, uh, you just, you just don't go. So you need to like go to the doctor. And I went and it was a doc who I already knew because it was a small base in Germany and I was like look here's here's all the things that have been going wrong since October 2005 I don't know what's up but I'm telling you I don't want to see I don't want to see anybody else I don't want any referrals I'm just putting this on the record and he happened to have read an article or an article or a message put out from uh, one of the neurologists at Longstool who was interested in studying concussive blast traumatic brain injuries. And he was like, look, you have all the symptoms. I'm sending you to neurology. I'm not going to send you to psych. Go see 
go see what she has to say because she is like the only one studying this, but you have every single symptom that she said to look out for. Went out there, talked to, talked to her. She was a major at the time. And she agreed with him, got me in for an MRI, called me the same day as the MRI and was like, you need to go to Walter Reed because you are, uh, you essentially have a coagulated mass in the center of your brain that if you whack your head on a countertop or you get in a car accident, you, uh, there's nowhere left for it to go. Like there's no expansion room anymore. Uh, you're basically, your brain is under constant pressure. So I had to go to Walter Reed and get neurosurgery. Wow. Um, so that was, that was super fun to, uh, call my mom from Germany and be like, so I might be in the States for a little bit. What but, time frame you know, was this? Uh, this would have been like April or May of 2008 at okay. this point, two and a half years later. All right. And so um, what happens in the four years before retirement after that? Is it just constant doctors and visits and everything else? It is. Yeah. And it was, but it, it also wasn't like, I thought that after the surgery, uh, I mean, I was still getting the migraines. Uh, I was, they were trying to see like how much is going to recover, how much isn't. Uh, I never went to the warrior transition battalion because I never, uh, I wasn't told that I had to. Um, I did call them because my first sergeant said I had to call them to check in, but I never actually got transferred there. So I basically, I still planned on having a career. I was like, well, you know, I guess they did this. Cool. Um, my nerves are shot. It turned out that like the ankle injury that I had gotten two weeks before that was never going to heal. And as a matter of fact, because my balance was now shot, I've kept re-tearing everything. So actually two, two weeks and like, let's say Friday, two weeks and four days ago or something. Uh, I actually just had my, uh, right leg amputated below the knee, uh, as a result of all of this nonsense. So, yeah, I went, uh, I just kind of tried to keep on going. I actually assessed into a special unit, did operations with them for a little bit, and then I volunteered to deploy again, walked into a doctor's office. This would have been maybe 2010, 2011, and one of the doctors was just like, I can't find a memo authorizing you to deploy we were supposed to put you out of service back in 08 when we figured this out and you oh, got wow. that brain surgery. And I was like, well, I'm just going to back on out of this here real slow and pretend I was never here. Um, that was, and I mean, I had just kind of come up with this plan of like, I'm going to do this deployment. Uh, I'll deploy with these guys, come back, put in my warrant officer packet, you know, finish out, uh, you know, I was going to do career and, you know, had talked about it with, uh, he was still my husband at the time. I mean, we never saw each other, but you know, I had talked about, I was like, you know, I think I'm going to do career or whatever. We'll figure out the logistics of that. And then a couple weeks later, I'm sitting in this doctor's office and he was like, Oh, what the hell are you still doing here? And I was like, uh, nobody told me to go home. So here I am. And just a complete change. I remember uh, I left and, and uh, I was stationed in Hawaii at the time and I uh, went back to my, I had rented a place 
off of uh, Lanikai Beach. And if you've never been to Lanikai on Oahu, it is like, it, that place is like heaven. And uh, I had beach access was right across the street, this little side road from where I had an, I was renting an apartment. And I parked my car, walked over to the beach, and I sat out there for like two hours just staring at, uh, staring at the ocean, like here I was again, uh, like maybe 10 years later getting told like, nope, nope, that, that, that army thing that we know you actually really like doing, nah, you're, uh, going home. Um, and my unit, uh, they didn't, uh, they didn't, they, it's a career special unit. So they had no idea really how to handle med board. So they ended up sending me back to do it out of Walter Reed. So that took like an extra year and a half. And I was like, well, like, uh, when I finally did get out and I was ripping off the band-aid, that's when I filed for divorce, sold my house. Uh, I was like, I'm going, I'm going to New York city. Like I want to be in the city. I want to like figure this out. Um, and, uh, there was a, uh, sequester at the time. There was no government hiring. There was a hiring freeze. And, uh, this was in, so late 2012, early 2013, uh, cause I had had a job lined up as a civilian with army CID and, uh, the criminal investigators and, uh, but there was no hiring. So, and they were like, uh, we don't know how long this hiring freeze is going to last. It could be months. And I was like, well, I need a place to live. And I, cause I just sold my house and divorced my husband. So, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was kind of a crappy time. Yeah. Uh, and even though I was in an area near where I'd grown up and I have, uh, friends in the city from I had some of my college friends and all of that, it was still just, adjusting sucked because I had been, I was like, even, even with the extended med board period, I was like, what am I going to do? Like, I actually love my job. I don't remember anything about engineering and everything has changed by now because it's been 10 years and, you know, technology changes like day to day. And, uh, so it just, it sucked. And then I ended up getting an apartment and like a week later they were like, Hey, we freed up some money at CID and you can, uh, we can start scheduling you for, uh, like we can get your packet moving again and like schedule for a uh, class date. And I was like, well, I just got, a, I just signed a two year lease on an apartment. So I guess unless that, uh, unless that assignment's here in New York city, uh, I have a problem. So it was just, now I have to figure out what the hell I'm going to do. And it's, it sucked. Um, still dealing with all of the medical issues because uh, they can only get you so far uh, with brain injuries, especially ones that are, are discovered two, two and a half years later. Again, like my leg was shot. I would still very, very, very slowly run some things, but uh, almost always end up hurting myself when I did it. I started volunteering with organizations, uh, started trying to get involved in the community. And the more I started doing that, the more I were running, I was running into people who were 
kind of like what I was, which is just basically like, I'm here, like, I'm just, I'm doing stuff so I can get out and like figure, try to figure this stuff out. But like, no one, no one knows what's like, no one knows what's going on. Nobody knows the right way to do this. And it occurred to me ultimately, like, this shouldn't be so hard. Um, like, why is this so hard? We have, we have this great series of tubes called the internet now. Uh, shouldn't, shouldn't like someone have figured this out by now. Shouldn't there be a place where I can go to be like, what's near me? What's available? What am I going to fit in with? Uh, cause you just kind of feel like you don't really fit in anywhere. Right. And, uh, especially in a city like, like New York city where, uh, it's not, uh, it's you, you, there's over 200,000 veterans of various generations, service generations here. And it's a, uh, a city with a lot of actual military history, mostly from like World War II and when there were still deployment centers out of here. But like you still just, it's very isolating. You're not running into, you're not just like running into people on the street and being like, yo, I recognize your haircut. So like, let's go hang out. Right. Um, so it's very much trial and error. And if you walk into a place and it was like when I used to deal with the army psychs, uh, the army psychologists, uh, when I was getting sent there originally and I would walk in and there was no incentive for me to really be cooperative with them at all. But it was also just kind of like, if you had a bad experience, you were like, I don't want to go back. I I don't want to deal with this. I don't, I've got, I've got enough else going on. I'm not coming back. But, and I was running into people who were like, you know, having that experience with not even necessarily the VA, but like an organization where it just wasn't a right fit for them. Mm -hmm. And they would be like, that's it. I'm not, not only am I not going back to that therapist, I'm not, therapy's clearly not for me. I'm just not going to go. And it started to definitely like, I was like, there's, uh, it was like a very like kind of like infomercial moment of like, there's gotta be a better way. So clearly at this point, you're exasperated by what's in front of you personally, professionally. You're not getting the help that you need. Uh, you're still dealing, you know, with injuries, both physical and non-physical. Uh, but you want to move on to the next phase of your life. So how does that process begin for you? And, and what do you seek out next? Um, I think a lot of it was just a, a, a general sense of, that I recognized something had to change, uh, not, not really just for me, but kind of for those around me as well. Um, it's just kind of the, the person who I am and, and as my therapist has discovered kind of the person I always have been where I am much more likely to sit here and, and figure out, is it just me that this is happening to, or is this kind of an everybody thing? And I started seeing that there was a lot of potential for change in not just the things that were offered, but the the way that we did things as a process. And I guess ultimately the, not necessarily even the, the engineer in me, but definitely the fact that I, had it once, once upon a time, many moons before gone to school for process engineering that I was like, there's, 
when we figure out a better way, it's it's got to be an actual process change. And um, at this point, I mean, I had I had kind of found I had figured out enough for myself that I was well, for lack of a better word, stable. I was getting care at the VA. I was also seeing, uh, I think by this point I was probably, I probably also found, uh, mental health that I was comfortable with at, uh, at a place called the Headstrong Project. And can you I tell was, me what the difference between mental health that you're comfortable with and not comfortable with? Cause I think that's an important point for the audience. Like what oh, makes sure. what uh, makes what made you comfortable with one versus not comfortable with the other? And obviously, this is only particular to you. It's not for everybody across the board. But I'm just curious. Uh, well, mental health being mental, the brain is such a weird thing. I think that it's it's automatically going to be different for everybody. Not no one treatment is going to work for everybody. No one type of therapy is going to work for everybody. Some people can walk into a room, unload whatever is kind of feels like it's weighing them down and it doesn't matter who's in there. And for some people, there has to be that almost like a personality mesh and a, a, a feeling that you're being heard, you're being listened to. So for, and for it's what's, what I always found interesting is that a lot of, I hear a lot of veterans say like, Oh, well, I don't want to see a, say a, a therapist that wasn't in the service. And then there are some people who, as it turns out, I am, I'm even more comfortable with someone who wasn't in the service because it means that I have to pull myself out of my own head periodically to kind of explain things like this is what it would have looked like, or this is, uh, this is the situation I would have been in, or this is how the process would have worked in the military. So it actually takes my brain out of a type of trauma and makes me realize like, oh, wait, well, in order to form the picture for somebody, I have to explain it. And that actually is more comforting to me, but it's different for everybody. Some people don't want to talk about it at all. They just want to, you know, brush horses or have a dog that, that because they have to walk it every day, it forces them to get out and be social or, uh, or something that relies on them. Therapy is so different for everybody that you need a good fit. And uh, when I was in the service, when I was first realizing that there was something kind of going wrong with my brain, I mean, I was having headaches and I was seeing shadows and I was, uh, you know, dizzy and all of these physical things. And that's pretty disconcerting. But the other issue about it was, you know, I mean, I, I wasn't sleeping and so forth. So when I went to my command and I said, hey, I'm not sleeping. And it's weird when I'm driving at night, like I feel like I'm seeing shadows on the side of the road or, or something's moving. They immediately said in, you know, late 2005, early 2006, oh, well, sounds like post-traumatic stress. So they sent me to mental health and I didn't mesh with a single one of those doctors that and the fact that, you know, it was a time where we were, we, those of us being, especially in the military intelligence world, were told, you know, if you end up with a diagnosis, with a mental health diagnosis, you're, you risk losing your clearance. So I was never comfortable with any of 
the people that I saw, it was basically like, I'm, I'm here because my command told me that I should come and see you because you're going to help me sleep. Like that was the whole reason for me going. And so I was very on edge. I was very apprehensive and I couldn't open up to anybody. Once I got out, uh, and I, well, even before I got out, when I was diagnosed with the brain hemorrhage and they did the surgery and I kind of had something to mentally to say like, oh, this is what was going on. This is what my real problem was. Then I went through my period of, oh, so I didn't have an anxiety issue at all. I didn't have a stress issue at all. And it took me still almost another two, it took me almost two years from when I got out to when I actually acknowledged that maybe there was something else going on that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm also angry. I'm also unhappy. I'm also, I must be Aki. Like I, I need to distract myself. Um, and so then I started poking around and I, I, even though I was getting some care at the VA, I wasn't, I, I just wasn't that comfortable there. Uh, the, everything from the waiting room on in Manhattan and New York City, it's uh, just a, the the waiting room isn't, isn't that welcoming, uh, especially when you're the only woman in there. Uh, or it, it just, it, it felt wrong. And so I've found just kind of uh, by luck of the draw and people who I knew and, and other veterans that I talked to recommended the uh, a place called the Headstrong Project. And when I spoke to them, my very first, my, my phone intake with the head clinician there was basically me telling him, hey, you know, I... I will agree to come into a first session, but I didn't have good experiences with mental mental health professionals while I was in the service. And quite frankly, I don't really trust them. I'm, I'm not sure that this is for me yet. And it's funny. It's, it's almost like the, the Dread Pirate Roberts right. saying from the movie <laughs> The Princess Bride where it's, you good know, uh, uh, yeah, um, like go to sleep, uh, almost like we kill you in the morning. And so that was very much me the whole time. I was, I was like, you know, I'll come in today, but there's no guarantees that I'll come in next week. Especially when I was like really starting treatment and like trying to go back through some traumas. It took some convincing some weeks for me to be like, oh, I have to go in and talk about, I have to talk about the roadside bomb that killed my friend today. Or I have to talk like, because we're, we're focusing on that. We're trying to like, get that out of my system like these are the things that I knew was coming at that point once I knew it was coming I was like oh it's gonna take some convincing for me to just tell myself okay it's Thursday it's time for it's time to do this but if I had had somebody that I was talking to that I was less compatible with I mean there's no way I would have gone back right uh at this point, are you more struggling with mental stuff or physical stuff or both? Both. I got to, uh, I was running the gamut of, um, so when, when you're medically boarded uh, and evaluated for retirement, 
they will only board you. Uh, you when you go through the medical evaluation board process, you're only going through it from a point where they say, we have gotten you to the furthest point of recovery that we feel we will be able to get you. This is pretty much going to be like your permanent state from here on out. So um, physically, I was I was still dealing with uh, all of the after effects of having a brain hemorrhage, that, especially a brain hemorrhage that wasn't taken care of for two and a half years. So I had nerve damage and I had uh, vision issues and I had balance issues and vestibular issues. And I went through cognitive and physical and, and all kinds of different therapies to try and get me back to the best point that the military could get me to with the technology and the research that they had at the time. And around, of course, my regular duties because... I was absolutely not leaving a, a regular unit for any of this. So when I went to the VA, a lot of what I said to them, especially when I was doing my intakes with them and my my uh, compensation pension appointments for disability was, hey, the military said this is as far as I'm going to get. Uh, and this is for my brain stuff. This is, I mean, you know, I had from... Prior to the roadside bomb, I still had issues with especially my my right foot and my right ankle and, uh, you know, I had nerve damage that, that didn't heal properly because of the resulting the nerve damage two weeks later from the brain injury and the fact that I was still regularly rolling, twisting, and tearing everything in my right leg for years because it never was given the chance to heal properly. I was like, but, you know, the military says that this is as far as I'm going to get, so I guess this is my life now. And I, I didn't really pursue a lot with them. It was much more, uh, I know that this is the process I'm supposed to go through. I come in here, I do my compensation pension appointments, I get my regular MRIs so that you can make sure that I didn't hemorrhage again you know, I'll, I'll just do the maintenance appointments and we're good. So I was dealing with both of those things. And, and was the was, physical part slowing down the mental part? The, the physical part is guaranteed to slow down uh, or even make the mental part harder. Uh, because if you don't feel good every day and you're still trying to, you know, it, if you're like, oh, I'm, I'm walking a mile work or or even just uh, especially for somebody with an active lifestyle like a, a lot of military and, and veterans you'll go crazy if you're if you're sitting in your house for too long but you know my leg is killing me because the weather is bad or I have a migraine again because again the weather is bad um, but that that it's so limiting. And, you know, I, I, I mentioned that, you know, I, w I was doing rock climbing and most of it was indoor, but it was, uh, so it was a regular thing. It was every week, but if I'm going climbing once or twice a week, I expect to make some progress, but because of my leg, because of the balance, because of all these things, 
I wasn't, I wasn't getting any better. And that's something that it's, it's not a big thing, but when you combine it with everything else, like, oh, and I can't concentrate in school or on a work project and I can't do this and I can't do it. It weighs on you and it all compounds to just this, it's a, it's a feeling of, uh, of, somehow like almost inadequacy or this should be getting better, but it isn't. And, um, and yet at the same time, I also had running through my brain and from, from the military of, well, but this is as good as it's going to get. So deal with it. Um, right. So it took, uh, it took, I mean, it took me almost two years to actually concede to first seeing a, a mental health professional. It, it took me even longer than that to, to start really pressing anybody at the VA to look at my, my feet and my shoulders and my neck. And, and all of these things um, because uh, let me tell you the, the body armor is not made for a person the, the, well at least the old body armor was definitely not made for a person under 120 pounds uh, still carrying a pack on it and so forth it was, uh, it was not good it wasn't super good for me so the the issues that I'm dealing with and managing and and all of that were and I actually couldn't see it I I I still had kind of that attitude of I this is my life and and this is what you know, these are the cho- the choices that I made got me to this point so here I am and so it took it took other people saying you know, maybe life could get a little bit better if you actually went and got somebody to do a, do a new MRI of of your feet or or do something about this. And I I hit a breaking point the winter, not this past one, but I think it was the winter of like 2017. So I'd been out for like four years and. I was walking around and, and it was just, and it's just cold and bitter. And for no one who, for someone who, I mean, I grew up in this area, but for people who haven't been to a, a, a dank part of winter in, in New York city, it's just the lushy, uh, like just below freezing wet cold that is just not pleasant at all uh there's because there's no ground there's no earth there's no trees to kind of absorb any of it and uh so it was i finally said you know what the there's the pain in my feet gets worse in the winter i'm gonna go i'm i can't keep doing this every year i'm gonna um I'm, i'm gonna go and see somebody about it so you know that year i was like well the the left foot isn't as much of a mess because over time I've been limping for so long that uh, the uh, the left foot, my arch had collapsed and I had, I was developing 
uh, neuromas, uh, nerve issues on my on my left foot too. And I was like, well, that one's easier. Let's take care of that one first. So I had a metal plate put in, and they reconstructed the arch, and they they basically did a, a you know an internal refit type of thing, just kind of um, put a new tube in the tire type of thing, and then. So that was the fall of 2018. But the real problem is that because I don't have any balance and I don't have full feeling in my right foot and I don't, and the feeling that I did have in my right foot was not a pleasant one. I proceeded to, over the course of the recovery of the left foot, just re-injure and re-injure the right foot. And then finally in January, we took a vacation some friends and I took a vacation and we went on a boat and I, you know, I stepped, I just stepped down wrong on a, one of the, like a wood grate drain while, and we hit a swell and it, it was just a comedy of errors where I just, as I was falling, because I didn't, I couldn't catch myself on my left foot, my right foot rolled and my, like, and it twisted and I tore everything that I had torn in the car accident in 2005 all over again in just one movement. And I was sitting on the back of the boat trying not to pass out from pain. Um, Luckily it was the last day of the vacation. So the next, so when I, we actually got home 24 or 36 hours later, I hobbled my way down to the emergency room and even just just looking at it and looking at the x-ray, they were like, ooh, you shouldn't be walking on that. And I was like, oh, it'll be fine. And uh, then the MRI, the MRI came back and said I had internal derangement of <laughs> the right foot and ankle. And I was like, that is my band name. I have called it. All you can step off. Band name, tattoo, everything. Internal derangement, that's mine. Um and and it's in my medical record, so I've claimed it. Um, <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, so where does so it go from here? Started, it was uh, the first. I mean, the the VA has a has protocol that they've got, which is basically like, oh well, we'll we want to fuse. We want to try fusing the whole thing, just basically everything from about. Uh, anywhere that it starts to bend to anywhere that it stops bending between the tip of your toes to the mid calf, we would probably like, we're going to fuse it. And that didn't sound super appealing because, you know, then you basically just have a plumping peg at the end of your leg anyway. So I went for a second opinion and the second opinion was like, well, normally, you know, uh, since you've done all the physical therapy and all of that and nothing seems to be getting better uh we'll put it in a boot for a while but you know yeah fusion and so i went for a third opinion and uh from a recommended doctor and because as a medic as a retiree i actually get tricare so i got a referral to an outside doctor who was like, yeah, you know, I see where they're coming from with the fusion and the attempt to reconnect or, or redo some of the nerves and tighten some of the tendons. But uh, honestly, I think your best prognosis is going to be if uh, if you amputate it. 
Um, What's because, it like hearing that? Um, I think I think a part of me realized that that was going to be this scenario because in the conversation with the surgeon, he said, you know, uh, he was like, you know, I almost he he was explaining to me. He's like, sometimes I explain it to patients like it's almost like a, a divorce where you're saying, okay, no, it's over. I'm no longer, I'm no longer really attached to you. I'm, I'm, uh, this is causing me almost more harm than good at this point. It's time to go. And I was like, oh yeah, I've been through that. I got divorced a couple of years ago. So I'm good. Um, and it was, it was very much the same thing. It was, uh, the, uh, now they have the whole uh, decluttering. If it no longer brings you joy, Marie Kondo, you know, no longer brings you joy, then get rid of it. And I was like, well, that that leg perpetually is no longer bringing me joy. Um, the the divorce analogy was actually pretty accurate because I was like, you know, when I separated from my ex, it was very much a, you know, I will always in some part of my heart care about you because I have for so long. You are a definite part of my life. I will always remember you, but, uh, it is time for us to go our separate ways. And in the case of my foot, it is a, uh, a time for you to go in a jar in some pathology lab and I will go on a different way from you. And um, I think that for people who are still in that phase of trying to, I guess, remedy all of the situations, like I'm going to get back to where I was or something like that, it, it's harder. Whereas I just have this mentality of, okay, this is the situation. Let's deal with it as it is. And, uh, again, the, my therapist, she, she says it's not sociopathology. It's actually just being stoic. <laughs> it's just, right. uh, <laughs> um, uh, a general acceptance of reality. Um, so, and so I, I took it pretty well. And then, uh, that was, Actually, April of this year is when I had that sit down with the surgeon and uh, August. So at the time of at the time of recording, it was uh, um, not even two months ago. That, wow. So uh, what is the hardest part now about having no right foot? I mean, obviously, you have to learn to walk again, but. When you when this is in front of you, I mean, is this like one of the? Are you going the route of a prosthetic, or are you just you know how are you handling the whole thing? Oh, uh, well, um, so I went. I I ended up getting a surgery, which is actually one of the reasons why I had uh, I went to this surgeon in the first place. Is is actually because when I was originally saying like, I need to figure out something to do about this leg with somebody who is not afraid to say there's got to be something other than fusion. It's either like rebuild it or, or do something else. And one of the leading orthopedics 
orthopedic surgeons in the country happens to be in New York City. So, um, but he has been, he's doing uh, research in prostate with a new type of prosthetic where it's essentially an implant. Uh, so I have a, a metal or well, titanium stake that goes up now all the way to the top of my tibia um, and it kind of sticks out at the bottom like a, a peg. When I was explaining the procedure to my parents prior to getting it done, uh, I explained it to my mom. I was like, it's like a KitchenAid mixer. It's like they, you've got like the little nub attachment piece, and then you can kind of clip on other bits at the bottom of it. And, you know, it just screws on with a, a, a clip or a screw. And it's exactly like that. Uh, so about um, a week and a half ago or two weeks ago now, I, I just got my first, uh, my clip-on attachment, which is your, for the KitchenAid, it's essentially, it's the standard beater. It's the, it's the foot with an ankle that uh, screws on to this little metal peg that just sticks out of the bottom of what, uh, what remains of my calf muscle. And, um, so I actually get biofeedback. Like I can, I can tell more about where my foot is in my fake foot is in space now than I could tell three months ago about where my fake foot or about where my real foot was in space. I had no idea of where it was on the ground or, or how I was putting it down. Where's this one? I can actually tell when it's resting on something and uh, because the, they reconnected the nerves, but also it just kind of goes back up through the bone. I get biofeedback. So um, it's, it's actually weird because when they were saying, Oh, you're getting phantom pains. And I was like, yeah, it's weird. Like uh, I feel like my big toe on my right foot itches and it's not there anymore. And I haven't felt my big toe in 14 years at all. So this is super weird. Now it's just uh, starting to figure out how these attachments work. And, and I've been walking so screwed up ever since the car accident in September or yeah, it would have been September of 2005 and, Iraq, uh, I've been walking, I've been walking all screwed up. So I'm not just learning how to walk with a prosthetic. I'm learning how to walk like a person and distribute my weight equally and not have to worry about like, am I about to roll my ankle again? And do I have to look down so that I don't step off so that I'm stepping off the curb completely evenly. So I don't put too much weight on get a shock of pain and roll over. Um, and I don't care what they say about New York, but you know, if you fall down on the street, people will help you up like it's, uh, and I am living proof of that because I've been helped up so many times in the past couple of years. Um, so it's definitely a process I, I have, uh, and now I'm starting to re reintegrate the VA back into the process. Um, They've been actually super supportive 
even though I didn't do the surgery through them, I, they've been very supportive. They've been calling to follow up. Uh, and they've been, uh, very, very interested in, in making sure that, you know, they pick up on the physical therapy so I don't have to pay for the co-pays through insurance. And, um, they're going to pick up on the prosthetics, the, uh, the head of prosthetics is already in communication with the prosthetic, the prosthetics lab from the hospital for special surgery, where I had uh, the process, where I had the procedure done. Like uh, the the VA here has been actually really, really supportive of it, and that's good. Uh, so I I start going back through them, uh, through through them to get everything done fairly soon and then it'll just be you know the post-op follow-ups and and stuff like that through the other docs but I'm actually given given the nightmare that I have found even even TRICARE as a retiree like the nightmare of health insurance and getting pre-approvals and getting, you know, is this in-network, is this out-of-network? What am I going to end up having to pay for again? Like, uh, which is still a surprise every time a bill arrives. And, sure. Um, yeah, oh, it's it's a magical process of, of healthcare, um, which, and I don't think a lot of people realize who are in the VA system and complaining about the VA system, I don't know if they realize uh that it's actually kind of nice to have one place you go, you see the doctor, you go and get referred. Yeah, you might see a resident, but there is an attending somewhere in the background. Like, it's really not that bad. Uh, it's just, it's a lot less administrative stress. Um, so where are which, you now with everything? I mean, when when you look back at your career and everything that you've been through, how do you characterize it? I wouldn't change it. Uh, I would not change anything that I've done. I would not. Uh, even if it meant having your foot except, still? Even if it meant having my foot still or having full brain capacity still. Um, matter of fact, the only thing I would change is I probably would have gone into EOD for at least a little bit for explosive ordnance because, you know, it just, they seem like such a tight knit, tight, like a, just a good group of people. Um, and, uh, and, you know, electronics and bombs and stuff is fascinating to me as an engineer, but, um, I wouldn't change it. Uh, I love the experiences that I've had. There's, I mean, there's good people and there's bad, there's good experiences and there's bad. Uh, it's a little bit more extreme with the military, I suppose, when you're talking about like, well, I, you know, I'm going on a work trip. And I might not come home or I might come home without all of my body parts or faculties. But it's it's I, I honestly wouldn't wouldn't change it. Some of the friends that I made was the best friends that I made in my life. And even in now that I have uh, the veteran community and I have uh, the this, I have support from there, I have support from that that end of my life and I don't I don't think I would have changed anything. I mean my my 
career now or my my business that I started is essentially to help people find their best fit. And mm-hmm. I wouldn't have even really recognized that as a problem if I hadn't gone through the things that I went through. Do you ever look so, back and wonder sometimes how you survived it all and how, like, you know, with so many people, so many vets committing suicide, how that was never an option for you? Um, interestingly enough, I would say that uh, there were there were some low points when I got out where it wasn't that I was actively considering. I, I never actively said I would like a, that I would or I wanted to commit suicide, but there were definitely, there were, there were points, there were definite low points where I said, you know, if I happened to get hit by a, a, a bus right now, oh, well, uh, you know, if a taxi runs a red light, oh, well, um, like it was a, it was, I definitely went through those apathetic periods right but uh the the key thing that i think helped me is that by the time that i was really hitting those periods i was already being someone and i was comfortable enough with that person to to tell them about that apathy sure um, I was seeing a therapist and I, and I talked to the therapist about it and I, uh, I was, and given the therapist level of concern, I was, uh, more inclined to trust them when they said, you're going to want to like, at least try some medication for a bit because, you know, therapy may not be enough to keep you out of falling deeper into this hole. And, um, what, and you, what were your feelings that, on the medication? Cause I was so anti it. I've been asked several times by there. You I'm like, no, I'm not taking drugs. I'm just not doing it. Yeah. Uh, oh man. Uh, well, when I was doing this in the military and they, or, and they were like, uh, before they diagnosed the brain issue and they were like, oh, you know, because you're seeing things or whatever, and you, you must have an anxiety problem. You must have post-traumatic stress. And therefore we're going to put you on, I don't even remember what it was at the time. Um, and I felt so, and I, I felt just kind of like dead inside all the time. Um, it's, uh, the, the medication I don't, uh, first of all, I, I kind of have a deal with the doctor where I will take the absolute minimum. Um, so, uh, trust me, I still get my moods. So right. <laughs> I'm like, these days I'm still getting my moods. Well, um, me, I, I don't actually, I don't think that it's, it, uh, it, it didn't have that deadening feeling, which was really what I was so worried about. And I was sure. like, you know, I don't want the medication. I don't want any of this. You know, I don't want to have to alter it. And they were like, so it was a case of figuring out which medications would basically, uh, do, do the things that I needed to do to kind of, uh, to be able to, I think it was, it was more like to be able to deal with things. So, um, but, uh, I, and so that's, and 
so I'm, I'm, I'm not, uh, like, do I recommend it as a first step for anybody? Absolutely not. And like, you need to really work with the doctors and you need to be willing to really work with the doctors and determine if whichever, if it's just the type of therapy that you're getting or whatever, because there's so many different types of even just non-medicated therapy. I mean, you've, you've got everything, like I was saying before, you've got everything from equine therapy and like not even really talking about your problems to psychotherapy where you sit there and talk about it to what I'm doing, which is uh, like direct trauma therapy, cognitive behavioral therapies, where I hold little vibrating pads and, and it's supposed to make the my brain process a trauma as I'm going back through it. Like, there's so many crazy ass things happening in science these days um, that I definitely still see medication as a last resort. Mm-hmm. But if, if you're not getting through, if you're not getting to sleep without drinking, or if you're not, uh, or if you're still not getting to sleep, even though you're drinking, uh, or if you're not, if you can't feel feel good any other way or if you're starting to say like even even that that level of apathy um that if you walk out in the street tomorrow and guy by a bus you know like oh well does it even really matter when i realized that i felt that way that was scary enough for me to say okay like if there is something that will make me not feel that way um then because and it's not even a case of like uh because they'll always say like oh you know you don't deserve to feel that way and and stuff like that but it was it nobody does um it's everybody has something to contribute and you continue to have something to contribute and but it's when you start feeling that way about yourself, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's terrifying. Sure. Um, and, uh, I, I think that the only way that I really got through it is because I already had built that support network. And that's right. one of the main drivers of why I'm doing what I'm doing with, the company that I've built and the, and the process that I've built is because I'm like, people need this right away. You need to, you need to walk out of whatever situation you're in. If, if you're in the military, if you're getting out with an honorable or a left or other than honorable discharge, if you're retiring after 20 years, or if you're medically retiring after two years, like you, uh, or, 10 years, which is why I constantly get the, Oh, why'd you, why'd you get out of 10 years? You should have just stayed in for the other 10. Right. Um, (laughs) I didn't have a choice guys. Uh, so, um, it's just, uh, it's, it's why I'm doing this. And it's such a driver for me to, to acknowledge, to, to realize this is, 
this is important. You need to be mm-hmm. able to walk out and directly into something that is going to give you one person, two person, uh, one person or two people or three people that will support you because those three people or that one person might be just enough to say, Hey, I'm going to sit next to you while, while we start dealing with this. You should, you should have somebody that you trust enough to say, okay, this, this isn't, it's not even like a, I shouldn't feel like it's like this. It's, this isn't normal. This isn't how people are supposed to feel. That's, that's what went through my head. Um, when I started recognizing that apathy, it wasn't a, Oh, I deserve to feel better. It was, this isn't normal. Um, people shouldn't feel like this. That's, uh, uh, cause it, I mean, I was at a state where I didn't feel like I deserved much of anything, clearly. So it was much more the kind of the abnormality of it that made me acknowledge it. And it was, um, and it, it took, you know, like my boyfriend saying like, no, I, I, I support you going to therapy or I support you trying out a, a matter or two and like, we'll, we'll get through this. Um, and it, it takes that, but it takes finding it first. And that can be the hardest thing for somebody is to find that first piece of support and to walk in to, to walk into an office, especially if, if like your, your local VA clinic is a huge hospital or something, you start feeling lost immediately. A lot of people will just walk in and they'll turn around and they'll walk right back out if that's not what they were expecting. And, you know, I, I feel like we need to know more about what to expect. I feel like we need to understand that once you get through that first doctor who doesn't seem like they're listening, and once you actually find someone who does, um, that it, it, it'll get better from there and you'll, you will start normalizing. And just because the army says that they couldn't make you feel better, doesn't mean that there's not another option. Um, and uh, I, 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 I really do believe that, especially as a community, that we, if we're better connected, that we can, we can help each other through a lot of things. Um, that's not to say that, you know, if you if you miss something. Uh, I mean, I've had I've had friends who have committed suicide. I've, I've lost friends to, um, suicide and, and, uh, even domestic violence and so forth, um, and drug overdose and, and so forth. It's, it's hard to draw that line of like saving uh, uh, that, like, I, I, I should have seen something. I should have said, uh, to see something, say something. Uh, but the, uh, because you're not going to be able to convince somebody to go to therapy who's not ready for it or who's not willing to go or who doesn't think that they want it or need it or whatever. Mm-hmm. It takes the person wanting to go to. But I think that if we are ingrained in that from before we're getting out of the service, if we're 
if we understand that there is nothing wrong with seeking help and that we're actually encouraged to, that it's not weird, it's totally normal, from day one, that it's it's good to let somebody know if something's not right, then we will start being able to really, to, to almost to trust each other and to, um, I mean, I had to get over trust of other people, of medical doctors, of myself, of all of these things. Um, and I definitely couldn't have done it by myself, but it took me acknowledging that it was kind of okay to ask. Um, sure. And that it was okay to say, I'm not normal, and uh, this isn't right. And um, so I think that I got lucky. Right. And now I just want to, my whole life goal is to basically turn it into something that's not luck anymore for people. It's, it should be just what happens. That's perfectly said. Um, and, and I think that uh, with that, you know, uh, you're sort of saying, I'm just going to create my own destiny. I'm going to create whatever's left of the life that I have and make it something that is worthwhile and not allow sort of the, the cards to dictate the hand that I'm going to play. And I think it's certainly a, a positive message that we're going to leave everybody on. It certainly has been an amazing journey for you and certainly has been one um, that I've, I've enjoyed hearing immensely. I mean, this is a, a great discussion and you've hit on a lot of points that, I think our audience um, has heard from time to time, but you know, you really made some salient uh, viewpoints. And uh, to that end, I can't thank you enough for your honesty and your candor, and just uh, being so forthright with everything that had happened to you and what you were feeling and going through. I think that's so important for our audience. Well, thanks so much for basically thanks for asking. Um, <laughs> I think that that's that's honestly that's that's super important too. Just asking and uh thanks to to those who listen and who like to listen and who want to listen that's it's so important well alana duffy uh you're an inspiration to a lot of people uh, keep fighting the fight and continue to uh to carve your own path and make your own way i know you certainly will best of luck with everything and certainly thank you for being part of the hazard ground thanks so much you've been listening to the hazard ground podcast Hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.